Welcome to the Healthy Returns Podcast, where I sit down with founders, investors, and executives innovating in health tech, fitness and wellness, and human performance. My guest today is Dr. Howard Foreman, Professor of Health Policy, Radiology, Economics, and Management at Yale University. He is also the founder and director of the Yale University School of Medicine MD-MBA program. When Dr. Foreman's not working in the emergency room as a radiologist, he's in the classroom training future clinician leaders on healthcare economics. And if he's not in the classroom, he's most likely recording an episode of his own podcast, Health and Veritas, where he and fellow Yale professor Dr. Harlan Krumholz dive into the latest news and ideas in healthcare today. Dr. Foreman's wide array of expertise as a physician professor makes for an insightful conversation spanning AI, social determinants of health, private equity in healthcare, and whole body MRIs. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Dr. Foreman, wel- welcome to Healthy Returns. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super interested in the work that I've seen you do and at least the public domain that's been shared. Um, You're a professor of health policy, radiology, public health, economics, and management. Um, A lot of different domains of expertise. So I'd love if you could start by breaking them all down and maybe explain the capacity in which you've had experiences in all of them. Yeah, so, you know, it's probably easier to describe what I do now than to sort of explain how it happened. But I currently continue to practice diagnostic radiology in the emergency room at Yale New Haven Hospital. I did that even last night. Um, And I am also the director of finance and at various times, slightly different titles, but effectively been involved in the financial management of what is now a you know, 80 plus million dollar clinical practice um, in the School of Medicine. So it's not a small business um, and very much involved in understanding how we pay for the delivery of imaging services and how we get paid for the delivery of imaging services. Um, So I've had a lot of experience with that. I also have a small role as leadership development for the health system, Yale New Haven Health System, which is one of the larger academic health systems in the country. Um, And then I run our various educational programs at Yale. So I run the healthcare management program in our School of Public Health, which is our second or third largest program in the School of Public Health. I run our MPH MBA and our MD MBA programs uh, with the School of Management. Um, and I run the healthcare track for the executive MBA program. And when we started the executive MBA program, there only was a healthcare track. So I founded that program. And then about five years ago, I helped us uh, get a, a new program called the Posen Commonwealth Fund for Health um, Equity Leadership, uh, which is now, I think, I think it's in its fifth year. So maybe it was even more years ago than when we competed for it. Uh, and so we've had a few graduating classes now, and we have uh, six current students, um, and that's yet another way. And each of these programs, uh, plus my undergraduate econ class, has taught me a lot. Like I started off having a lot of, um, you know, a background in very specific domains related to radiology and related to uh, medicine as as I experienced it. And now it's led to me learning a lot more over the years about health equity, about uh, disparities in healthcare, about social determinants of health, and so on. 
And so that's how I end up where I am right now. I first um, came across your work uh, upon listening to a podcast you did um, with with the Commonwealth Fund called The Dose. And that was all about the role of private equity in healthcare. So I'd actually love to bring up a quote that you'd said, and we can maybe start from there. So during the episode, you said, look, I think private money invested in healthcare can lead to better outcomes in specific cases. I'm not dismissing that the private sector cannot, does not, and will not be part of some solutions. But at the moment, most of the private equity money does seem to be making matters worse rather than better in aggregate. So based on that, can you map out where you do see the private sector playing? Look, there are startups like City Block Health that are looking at Medicaid populations and using um, community partners to improve both health and health care for generally more impoverished populations. Oak Street's a good example of a company that has made its entire market in the Medicare Advantage population, including dual eligibles. Um, like, these are companies in many cases that have never made a real profit. Some of them can be cash flow positive, but they haven't necessarily made a real profit. But they're experimenting and innovating in ways that otherwise, you know, I, I would not have imagined in the past. And it's hard for me to judge whether in the aggregate, either what they're currently doing or that what we learn from what they're doing won't be beneficial to health and healthcare in the future. And that's part of the problem is that everything we're doing is part of a learning process. When people look at CMMI and realize that we've lost money compared to what we expected when that was passed as part of the ACA in 2010, uh, people are very negative on that. Like, oh, you were supposed to make money. Instead, you've lost money and therefore it's not been successful. Well, no, because we've learned a lot from it. We learn from our failures. Even when we lose money, we learn from those things. So I'm not completely dismissive of the fact that private money can lead to better outcomes for everybody. On the other hand, in between Joel's um, podcast that we did uh, just a few months ago. And now an article has come out in JAMA, I believe, and I don't remember if it, which JAMA journal it was, but that showed that private equity-owned hospitals have performed worse on quality measures um, and some other measures compared with non-private equity-owned hospitals. And that's really disturbing. And then right in my backyard of Waterbury, uh, where a private equity firm owns uh, several facilities, including Waterbury Hospital, we are seeing tremendous damage occurring. Uh, and a lot of it does seem to flow from the fact that a private equity actor stepped in, stripped the assets of their real estate, reduced spending on infrastructure, ultimately got hacked, ultimately did not have the wherewithal to recover from the hack, is now behind in bills uh, for taxes paid to the state. And you can't not look at that and say that is an enormous failure. Sure. Yeah, I think the, the business of healthcare is always something that's been super fascinating to me because I think it's a very slippery slope when on one hand, you're trying to improve health outcomes, but on the other hand, you're also trying to maximize profitability and returns. Um, do you think about that in any sort of sort of way? And um, are there maybe companies that do both really well and that maybe, you know, when 
their margins are the greatest is when their customers and their patients are um, the most healthy. So when I teach my classes, I tend to remind people that the difference between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is not a great one. Like not-for-profits very often pay their CEOs as much or more than for-profits. Not-for-profits do have to make a profit. The only difference is that the profit cannot flow back to shareholders, but rather to the community or the institution. So there's not a huge difference between them. And for a long time, I really tried to emphasize that they were more the same than different. But there are different short and long-term demands on not-for-profits and for-profits. Private equity firms make promises to investors to return money over a certain period of time. Uh, they have a shorter time horizon than not-for-profits do. Uh, private equity owners are not necessarily interested in what the institutions will look like in 30 years. They really care about what they're going to look like in five or 10 years. And so there are significant differences when you're talking about private equity owned as opposed to publicly owned institutions, which at least can have a more long term horizon. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing to keep in mind is that. You know, one of the most successful not-for-profits in the country in healthcare is Kaiser, right? Kaiser is oftentimes elevated as a model for health and healthcare, and they do so many things well. But the one thing that Kaiser has that most other health insurers and even integrated delivery systems don't have is they have almost complete control over who their payers are, and their payers are primarily employers, which is the most profitable segment of the health insurance market. And the second biggest market they have is Medicare Advantage, which is also one of the most profitable segments of the insurance market. What they don't have, or at least have in very small numbers, is Medicaid and uninsured individuals. And so Kaiser makes enormous amounts of money and does a great job of delivering healthcare. And so I used to look at that as like, how do we replicate Kaiser? And I still think there's a lot to be learned from Kaiser. But the biggest thing to learn from Kaiser is that if you want to make money, don't care for the poorest patients. You've been a very vocal commentator of um, how the U.S. handled the pandemic. So you know, thinking about health equity, like what were some of your biggest takeaways from that? And um, maybe tie it back to, again, the issue that is we're not really focusing on treating, you know, populations that are traditionally underserved by, by healthcare. Right. Look, we've got a, a little more than one in four people in this country on Medicaid. And then we have a little bit right around 10% of the population that is uninsured right now. Um, so that's already up in the range of, you know, 35%, let's say, um, of the population is never going to be profitable for providers. Mm -hmm. In a capitalist system that we're in right now, that almost ensures healthcare inequities. Um, and healthcare inequities will contribute to health inequities. But let's put that aside for a moment and just talk about the health inequities and the absence of healthcare inequities. We know that better education, better nutrition, better access to uh, healthy foods, uh, walkable communities, social connections, better sleep, 
we know that these are factors that are strongly um, concordant with better health. And, and by the way, better health is also strongly predictive of better education and better job opportunities. So it's a virtuous circle if you can get into that. Sure. But we have a large part of the population that does not have access to those features of life that many of us take for granted. And so you start off with a population that is basically in deficit, and then you give them health care that is less profitable to the provider and therefore less accessible. And you have a recipe recipe for perpetual um, degradation of the well-being of a human population. And so we have big health equity issues. We proved with COVID-19 at the beginning that no matter what we did, we couldn't overcome the social determinants of health that were in place. Um, even the best places, even the places that tried their best to prioritize the poorest populations couldn't do it. They were, they were decimated in every way, both because of biologic factors, meaning that they started off being more obese, sicker, higher hypertension, more likely to have asthma to begin with, but also because they were more likely to be in low-wage jobs, more likely to be incapable of avoiding close contact with human beings. They were healthcare workers, but not highly paid healthcare workers, but home health aides, they were health techs and so on. They were essential workers in supermarkets, like they couldn't avoid it. That part we did horribly with. When it came to the vaccination efforts, we actually did much, much better. I think that considering that there are strong structural reasons why um, certain minority groups, not just poor groups, but certain minority groups would be more vaccine skeptical, uh, more um, difficult to convert to taking a vaccine, we did very, very well with getting them vaccinated. And these populations, as it turned out, were most at risk of COVID, long COVID, and death from COVID or other mor morbidities related to COVID. So getting them vaccinated probably did more in those populations than we give ourselves credit to. We often look at aggregate numbers and say that, you know, vaccines save this many lives. It was probably more than that because through our efforts, we had better vaccination efforts against certain populations that were almost certainly much higher risk. And we probably did more good in those populations than we thought. So we've proved that we can do with, with sprints, we've proved that we can do things better. But when it comes to marathons, we do things horribly. And we've got to figure out how to do better with the marathons. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, as you said, the biggest marathon of all is the social determinants of health, where you're not going to see improvement for, you know, maybe maybe decades, right? Multiple decades, because that requires um, a coordinated effort from so many different, you know, um, people, not just from the public se sector, but from the private sector as well. And I think that's why you see a lot of reluctance from the private sector who want the you know, three to five year return um, for, for their investors. Right. And, and look, let's also be honest. It's not just an effort. We have um, structurally, permanently, purposefully denied large groups of, of individuals in this country the ability to accumulate an endowment over centuries. Like we've literally stripped people of their ability to accumulate wealth. Um, and 
Therefore, we have this enormous income and wealth disparity in this country, and that's not going to go over, go away overnight. And there are no really simple ways to solve it. And so we have to be creative about how do we fix that problem in and of itself. When I think about um, health inequities and lack of access to quality health care, then I look at some of these consumer health companies that are trying to fill that gap. Um, a lot of them are disintermediating the, um, you know, in, in the payers um, and trying to lower costs as much as possible so that um, even if it's an uninsured population that they can maybe still afford the product or service. Um, and the specifically, specifically, I'm talking about healthcare wearables because, you know, I think the evidence with the consumer wearables is it's clear, like they increase physical activity, which has profound impact on longevity. But then you look at who's using these wearables and they fall into like one of three buckets, right? They're either young, they're white, and they're more often than not wealthy. Wearables were a huge part of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? You had on one hand, a handful of like professional athletes who were looking at their whoop straps and saying, oh, like this, this whoop strap told me that, you know, I was gonna come down with the illness before I was even symptomatic. But then on the other hand, you have issues with pulse ox machine devices, right? That are giving inaccurate readings for um, people with darker, darker complexions and darker skin tones. So I think that's just indicative of the conversation we're having. And, um, you know, I, I was curious if you had any thoughts about if there's even a way to democratize these consumer wearables that have shown to you know, improve physical activity, for example, but are just too expensive at their current price points. So I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. First is that technology does diffuse down to, you know, lower um, wealth and income groups over time. We've seen that with iPhones and other uh, handheld devices. They first go to the rich, you know, early adopters, and eventually they're in the hands of everybody. It's, it is remarkable. There are people that are panhandling in the street, but they have to have a phone because honestly, you can't exist in the world today without a phone. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind that we do have um, the, the poorest elements uh, will eventually benefit. But from an equity point of view, is that acceptable to us? And, and at what point does it become acceptable to us? I think the other thing, if you look at the article in the New Yorker magazine on um, Friday, I think it was, in, by Dhruv Kular, who's our former uh, medical student and actually undergrad at Yale as well, uh, on whole body MRIs is a similar example of very expensive tech being consumed by very rich people. That is not going to trickle down to the poorest elements in any time soon. Um, the thing about health tech is that it actually is marginally not expensive. A lot of the technologies you just described uh, aren't expensive. They're probably marginal costs of dollars, not hundreds of dollars. The MRI thing at the present time, like we've had MRI for 30 years, marginal cost hasn't gone down nearly enough. Maybe you could do something like that for a couple of hundred dollars, but a couple of hundred dollars is still a lot of money. So. I'm, I'm very concerned about how we spend money on technologies that do not have proven value to even the rich individuals, knowing that those dollars could be spent and have enormous value to poorer individuals. And make no mistake, 
A whole body MRI uh, piece by, by Druve understates the impact on poorer individuals because when a rich person pays out of pocket for that whole body MRI, it is all of us through Medicare, through uh, private insurance that pay for the follow-up studies and follow-up care that that person receives. And that is dollars that probably are low value or no value dollars being spent that could have been spent on other populations. I'm so glad you brought up the, the whole body MRI um, you know, topic. I think right now it's kind of almost among you know, people who are wealthy, it's almost used, viewed as not a symbol of, oh, I really care about my body and my health so that I, so I'm going to do this, take this preventative measure. But it's viewed as a symbol of status. And I think when you start to look at health as, you know, in terms of status, then it becomes a privilege. It doesn't become a right, which is absolutely backwards. Right. Um, now, barring, you know, the whole body MRIs, can you maybe talk us through some of the latest literature that you've been seeing on preventative cancer screenings in terms of the efficacy and, you know, reducing mortality, but from like a cost effectiveness perspective? Look, there, there are many interventions that we have right now that appear to be cost effective in specific populations, right? So colonoscopy is cost effective in specific populations, and I won't get them exactly right, but I think over 50 or over 40 if you have a family history of colorectal cancer or something else. Uh, for lung cancer screening, it's cost effective in certain groups that have a history of smoking. Uh, for breast imaging, it's for, I think, women over 40 now or over 35 if they have um, a dense breast or something like that. I mean, there's specific criteria, and I don't, I'm not a primary care doctor, so I don't spend enough time knowing them precisely, but there are specific things for which we know they work in specific categories. The problem, again, is when we start applying these to larger and larger populations that don't neatly fit into the tested uh, categories, and then they become less cost-effective. The problem is that when we don't do as diligent a job with the screening as we did when we did the trial, so are your breast images being read by the best breast imagers, breast mammographers? Is your colonoscopy being done by somebody who's a high-volume high effectiveness gastroenterologist? Is your um, lung cancer screening being interpreted by a dedicated, um, well-trained thoracic radiologist? Like, we really do want the best people doing them on the right populations. And all too often, these screening exams start being done on the wrong populations or by less qualified individuals. Now, when I look at the flip side, um, not of the patient, but a radiologist like yourself, um, I would be kicking myself if I didn't ask this question to you. Um, where, where do you see the role of AI in all of this? Again, in terms of like a cost effectiveness, effectiveness perspective. So, you know, AI is phenomenal already. It already does a lot. It, you know, I wrote my first piece on AI and radiology, like seven or eight years ago now. And at the time, if you would have asked me when we would see like AI starting to replace radiologists, I probably would have said five years and it'll be very, very slow. And 
And, and I thought, I know what I thought. I don't remember what I would have thought time-wise, but I know what I thought would happen is I thought some of the low-hanging fruit would start to get automated. That has not happened. What has become automated is very specific functions that allow radiologists to operate either more efficiently or more effectively or both. An example of that is for pulmonary embolus, a certain software that we use at Yale and for which I have no other conflict but use it as a radiologist, um, that software reduces a missed pulmonary emboli, a certain type of pulmonary emboli, by 59%. So we pick up way more patients now with that software than we used to when we were just using the human eye. It's not replacing radiologists, but if you if you had to guess, you would say that radiologists are probably reading these studies faster, and therefore you need fewer radiologists to read the same volume across the entire nation if everybody was using this software. The same is true for a lot of other minor and major applications within the AI space. Um, things like rib fracture detection, pneumothorax detection, um, uh, bleeds inside the brain are particularly good. It does, it does a really nice job with that. And I think it is making radiologists better and speeding them up. Is it having some impact on demand for radiologists? Pretty sure it is. Is it reducing um, uh, the actual need for radiologists? No, because the demand for radiology, the radiology imaging is going faster than the reduction in demand is occurring from AI. And so we're not, no one's noticing a decrease in demand for radiologists, but it's, it's doing a good job for us. As you mentioned, you started the um, MD-MBA program at Yale. What, in your opinion, like, why do you think it's important for future doctors and future clinicians to be thinking about the economics of healthcare? So I think it's important for physicians in particular to be able to understand this $4.5 trillion, $4.4 trillion, whatever number you want to choose, economy that is around them. Like if you don't realize you're part of an enormous slice of the U.S. economy, um, you're failing your patients and you're failing yourself. Like you have to understand the ecosystem in which you operate. And you can do it casually, and courses in medical school will be satisfactory for that, or you can play a more active role. And we've been really proud among our first 100 graduates. I think only four have not gone ahead and done an internship. So we've been training clinician leaders, not just leaders in healthcare. Um, and our graduates have gone on to roles in venture capital, in um, hospital management, in academic administration, public service. We've had uh, one person is an elected official, one person is the current Surgeon General of the United States. Um, you know, we've had lots of entrepreneurs. It's exciting to see how people are able to be their best selves, inclusive of their management and leadership abilities. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think one more thing is, um, and this is just to your point that um, future physicians, if you're not aware of kind of holistically what's going on in the broad scheme of healthcare, then you have no idea if your 
perpetuating an inequity, for example, if you're contributing to the fact that, um, you know, a large patient population, who, that population being uninsured, um, is not able to receive the same care as everybody else. So, um, you know, really, uh, really commend you for, you know, kind of the curriculum, curriculum you built and how you're training uh, future leaders. Thank you. Last question here. If you had a magic wand in your hand, you could change anything in healthcare and that change would be implemented tomorrow. What would that be? I would import the National Health Service of England to here and uh, fund it at uh, 20% less than what we currently spend on healthcare in this country. And that would be substantially more than the National Health Service funds their program. And I think we would have 98% of the population more satisfied and maybe 2% of the population less satisfied. You've never been one to shy away from making, you know, your opinion heard. And I think that's so amazing, especially um, in a, in a, you know, in an industry such as healthcare. Is there a certain topic that you have a very contrarian view to, you know, kind of how the rest of the public discourse is going about that topic within healthcare? I think I have a contrarian view on everything. I think I have both views on most things. I think what what distinguishes me is I'm not I, I am I do not have a single view on everything. I think that the Inflation Reduction Act was an enormous success and will be an enormous success in holding down drug prices. And they also think it'll stifle innovation a very small amount, and that is acceptable. There are other people that take only one view or the other, that it's going to stifle innovation and therefore it was bad, or it's going to hold down drug prices and that's the only thing that matters. You can hold different viewpoints at the same time and be able to rationally talk about it. I can believe that repetitive head injuries are very dangerous for teenagers and not say that you must ban them on all teenagers because I can also hold a libertarian viewpoint that individuals um, get to make decisions for themselves in concert with their parents and their doctors or so on. And so I, I like the fact, I think the, my strength is that I do not hold a ideological view. I do not hold a single view of things. I can hold multiple views at the same time and help other people make their own decision about them. I think that's such a wonderful message to end on. Dr. Foreman, this was such a great conversation. Um, I had a blast. I learned so much. I know my uh, my audience and my my viewers will, will definitely take the same insights that I take took away from this conversation. Um, I know you have a, a, pod, a very successful podcast as well called um, health and Veritas. So um, how can people follow and support you, your podcast, and the rest of the work that you continue to do? As with your podcast, we're available wherever podcasts are found on Spotify, Google Play, or whatever it's called, and and Apple Podcasts. And uh, we're very happy with it. it. Much like yours, it's conversational. We have a guest every week, uh, not every week, but most weeks. And, and uh, Harlan and I banter about various topics and Harlan Krumholtz, in my opinion, is one of the greatest health policy leaders in the country um, and really a scholar. And I'm much more of a teacher. And between the two of us, we have a lot of fun talking about just a wide array of topics. But I, uh, I think, you know, if uh, in time, I think Harlan has to worry about you uh, more than he has to worry about me. So I look forward to listening to you more in the future.